Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction. I'm Charlie Jane Anders. I'm a science fiction writer who thinks rather a lot about science. And I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction. Today, we're going to be talking about indigenous futurism, and we're incredibly lucky to be joined by two incredible, brilliant guests, Julia Noiscat and Rebecca Roanhorse, and we're going to just get right into it after the break. Julian and Rebecca, maybe you could we could start off by having both of you just introduce yourselves and tell us a couple sentences about who you are and what you do. Uh, Julian, why don't you go first? Uh, well, thank you first. Thank you so much for for having me on. My name is Julian Brave Noisecat. I'm a member of the Sequetmuch and Statlink Nations in what is now British Columbia, Canada. Although I've grown up and reside in the United States, currently in Washington, D.C., uh, and I do a variety of things, primarily journalism and uh, some policy development and advocacy. Cool. And Rebecca? Uh, hi, I'm Rebecca Roanhorse. I am Black on my father's side, Okayawenge descended on my mother's side. Uh, and I live here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, um, where I am married to a Navajo artist uh, and so have in-law connections uh, to the Navajo Nation. Uh, I'm also a science fiction and fantasy writer. I won a Hugo, a Nebula, and a Locus for various works, including a short story called uh, Welcome to Your Authentic Indian Experience. Awesome. Cool. So the term indigenous futurism uh, was coined by Grace Dillon at Portland State University, who edited an incredible anthology called Walking the Clouds, an anthology of indigenous speculative fiction, which I've been reading for the past couple of weeks. And I'm just, it's so amazing. It's such a great book. And, you know, similar to Afrofuturism, indigenous futurism is, is described as imagining futuristic storylines and settings with indigenous people featured in them and centered in them, and also just futures in which indigenous people prosper. And, you know, she talks a lot about what this means in the introduction to Walking the Clouds. But I would love to hear from both of our guests, what does indigenous futurism, what does that phrase mean to you? Mm, uh, right. So I would, I would, um, yeah, categorize my work as indigenous futurism. I think that's fair. Uh, and for me, that means, you know, that you're, I guess, indigenous futurism for me functions in two ways, can create art or stories that are speaking to the colonial experience. So you're in dialogue with colonization and, you know, genocide and the history of land loss and all the things that are happening um, for indigenous peoples uh, in the Americas as, and in other places, too, if it's international um, indigenous folks. But I think what excites me the most about indigenous futurism is this idea that you can center indigenous stories, that we actually don't have to constantly be in dialogue with sort of mainstream history or, or white settler stories, uh, that we can create our own. We can see our own people and our own selves and stories in the future, but we can also talk to the past. Uh, and we can reframe history from our perspectives. Uh, we can retell stories 
you know, with indigenous values or indigenous viewpoints, uh, and even into the present, because I think one of the great things about indigenous futurisms, and I think you see this also in Afrofuturism, is there is a play with time, right? There's an elasticity to that. This is not, when we say futurisms, yes, we absolutely mean the future. We are here, we will continue to be here, but we are not constrained by the idea of only being in the future. Uh, there's an idea that time is fluid and that by reclaiming and retelling stories, uh, we are reframing them you know, from a future perspective as well. So there's a fluidity to the concept of futurism. Julian, how do you see that fitting into your work? Because I feel like a lot of your journalism and your policy work too is kind of reframing Indigenous history as a way of like looking forward to you know, how we might have better social policies around single moms or around homelessness or around, you know, how we treat history, like on Alcatraz Island, for example. I'll just be honest and say that I guess some of my work could be categorized under sort of an indigenous futurist sort of posture towards contemporary indigenous life and history and you know, issues of social justice and culture and arts and all that sort of stuff. Like if there was like a proper noun indigenous futurist, I don't know if I necessarily would first categorize myself under that. Although I do think that some of that sort of analysis would apply to my work. I guess the thing that, you know, I am constantly confronted with as a, a nonfiction writer as a, as a journalist, um, you know, somebody who has to construct narrative out of sort of the facts of the world, is that as Native people, we are constantly sort of consigned to the, to the pages of history. There was a very, you know, notable and celebrated book of United States history by Jill Lepore, uh, who's also a New Yorker staff writer whose work I, I honestly like read it every single time it's in the magazine. But, you know, in that, in that history book, there is only one mention of anything in United States history regarding Native people after the year 1900. Uh, and that is actually, she, she refers to the, the occupation of Alcatraz, which she actually erroneously attributes to uh, being launched by the American Indian Movement and having grown up in Oakland, California, um, you know, we were, it was hammered into our heads when we were, when we were kids by the people who actually led that movement, that it was started by a group called the Indians of All Tribes, uh, by a, essentially a group of native students and urban native people who were at places like San Francisco state and, uh, living in places like Oakland. And I, th I think that that, that might be sound like a minor detail in like a, you know, very big and important work of history, but I think it's important because I think it illustrates the reality, which is that so many writers and historians and people who think about contemporary life still either explicitly or implicitly, firstly, you know, believe that Native people's only relevant contributions to history are, are past. You know, there are things that happened on the frontier in the 19th century and usually involved, you know, some chief like Geronimo or Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. And that history is obviously important. But, you know, there's also so much happening right now in Native life and, and culture. And similarly, you know, I think that it's notable that a, that a historian would, even in the single detail that she included about, about our people uh, and our contributions to United States history, actually get the story wrong. Uh, and I think that that's a second piece of this, right? That Native people's uh, stories are 
so marginal and and so little known that it's actually okay to be you know sort of the preeminent United States historian, a tenured professor at Harvard, a New Yorker staff writer, someone who produces prodigious and beautiful work. And when it comes to the first peoples of this land, you get some of the details a bit wrong. Uh, firstly, like my, I, I see my sort of role as a as a journalist in in getting the story right and and getting the story of of how it pertains to now on why native people matter in this moment. Because you know, as a native person, I've I've been told since I was a little child that we are a people of the past and that we do not matter in contemporary life. And I think I'm writing against that social and cultural assumption. Yeah. And on that note, uh, in the introduction to uh, Walking the Clouds, Grace Dillon talks a lot about like different forms of thinking about the future, including indigenous science and sustainability and sort of decolonization of narratives and, you know, returning to ourselves, which she talks about as kind of returning to reclaiming traditions in order to have them in the future. And I'm wondering if you can both talk about like the relationship between those two ideas, the idea of sustainability and, and science on the one hand, and reclaiming traditions and, and returning to ourselves and in the on the other. Uh, well, I think for science fiction, fantasy, for I'm a fiction writer, right? So um, and I'm actually, you know, speculative fiction even. And I think uh, one of the things, one of the ways that science fiction has really let uh, native people down is uh, a lot of kind of what Julian said. It's, it's happens in science fiction as well. You know, we're stuck in the past. Uh, and for some reason, the science fiction imagination has failed to move us past the 1900s. Uh, never mind, you know, 2000 and 2100 and, you know, and, and, and above. Part of, you know, the, the impetus, I think, of indigenous futurism is to make sure that we exist in the future and that our ways exist. You know, one of the also the failures, I think, of science fiction, uh, the failures of imagination is that we, we don't seem in mainstream science fiction to do anything but conquer other planets. We have this very sort of colonial viewpoint about how our interactions with other, you know, people or um, beings on other planets would go. And it's usually, you know, kill them all, build our own cities, you know, that sort of, <laughs> you know, the same sort of way that Europe approached, you know, the rest of the world uh, when it decided, you know, on a, on a path of conquest. And so that's unfortunate. And so one of the, I think, exciting things that other Indigenous futurist writers have done is sort of take that idea on. Uh, that there are other ways to interact with flora, fauna, humans, whatever that is. And there are other ways to sort of explore space. And, and what would that look like if we weren't just out there conquering or, you know, what would that look like? And then, you know, you also have a narrative, I think, in science fiction uh, that's just right out of the West, whether it be Star Trek or whether it be um, um, the Mars. Oh, mm -hmm, the Martian. The Martian, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Where, you know, it's sort of, the load man against, uh, you know, the forces of nature, whether they be, you know, in space or whether they be on earth, it seems that this is a common narrative as well. 
there's no collaboration. You know, it's always just survival of the fittest and nature is against you. And it's this sort of brutal thing where you approve yourself, you know, a man, which is very much, mm-hmm. you know, I guess the Western narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Rugged individualism. Yeah, yeah, the rugged individualism and space is the final frontier. Wow, frontier. Did you really say that? You know, so <laughs> it's sort of interesting yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> to posit other ways of thinking about that. So I think maybe that speaks a little bit to your idea of like sustainability or like what that looks like, that there are, there are better ways to imagine space. Um, there are better ways to imagine uh, interacting with other uh, life forms. Yeah, that's really cool. I like that. What about sort of reconciling science and sort of environmental science with traditional ideas? Right. One of the things that I know that um, Grace Dillon talks about and uh, Elizabeth LaPense, who is, I think, at University of Michigan, she's a game developer. Uh, She's actually Grace's daughter. She's really at the forefront of gaming and Indigenous futurism. She talks about, you know, sort of reclaiming science, uh, that Indigenous thinking, Indigenous ways have often not been thought of as science. But, you know, it's science just as much as anything else is. It's, you know, it's, it's the observation, it's the hypothesis, you know, it's, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, but because it came from Indigenous people, it's often discounted. And so I remember there's like a whole hashtag that was going around on Twitter called, you know, Natives Told You So. And so there'd be constant scientific discoveries, you know, oh, well, you know, we have red algae that does this and oh, the scientific breakthrough and people would be like, oh yeah, you know, we've been talking about that forever in our tribe, you know, hashtag natives told you so. Or, you know, birds carry fire and, you know, oh yeah, we know that, hashtag natives told you so. <laughs> so it's this whole sort of uh, discounting of um, traditional knowledge uh, when it's actually been passed on for generations. And it's, and, and so there is a reclaiming of that as well uh, as part of the science and science fiction. Uh, and that's pretty exciting too. So I guess just to take a step back, right? There is this sort of imperial form of um, scientific knowledge and reasoning that was from the time of Darwin and, and before, you know, deeply ingrained in the colonization and conquest of indigenous lands globally, right? Um, Darwin was himself on an imperial vessel. And that, of course, as as Rebecca pointed out, you know, gets projected onto a lot of science fiction. You know, it's the in Star Trek, it's the USS Enterprise. And you mm-hmm. know, Captain Kirk is awfully similar to, uh, you know, Captain Cook. Um, mm-hmm. There is a conceptual and theoretical framework and relationship to the world that is rooted in often sort of a form of inquiry and relationship to indigenous peoples and land and and sometimes even you know ecology itself that was always you know for so long considered to be superior was actually considered to be part of the part of Europeans right to conquer so much of the world uh, was the fact that they supposedly encountered inferior peoples you know, I think that it's it's telling and, and notable that from, you know, just from from the stuff that I pay attention to with my journalism and sort of policy work, in all sorts of areas of inquiry now, whether it be uh, the proper way to manage, you know, fisheries in the Pacific Northwest, where where my family comes from, the proper 
sort of approach to managing the forests and making sure that there aren't crazy wildfires across much of the American West, or even I think in a more heady sense, like understanding actually that humans are not, you know, separate from our environment, are not actually, you know, this sort of uh, rational sort of semi-god that sort of reigns over the land, but actually that we are deeply embedded in the ecosystems in which we live and are actually very dependent upon them, something that I think is very ingrained in, in you know, most indigenous forms of, of knowledge and governance that I've come into contact with. You know, I think that there, there is a way that we are still in 2020 sort of undoing some of the ways that colonization and, and imperialism led our forms of knowledge astray. And I think that, you know, to give full credit to folks like Rebecca and, and artists and, and, and culture creators, uh, very often that also means that we're making now like better art. Like I'm a, I'm a big fan of Star Trek, but like, you know, I, I do think that the, the sorts of sort of culture that are emerging from, you know, an indigenous sort of futurist perspective on arts and culture, and also like an Afro-futurist perspective on arts and culture are much more compelling and interesting and inviting to sort of a new generation of people like me. By sort of acknowledging the importance of indigenous people, by not making us invisible, by not relegating us to the past, by acknowledging our forms of knowledge and governance and culture and all that sort of stuff, I think we actually produce a much more holistic and actually even, you know, better sort of uh, scientific and human understanding of, of the world and where it's headed and uh, how we might, you know, make it better. Yeah. So we're going to take a very short break. And when we return, we're going to talk about storytelling and speculative fiction in particular. Part of what I love about, you know, Walking the Clouds and some of the other indigenous speculative fiction I've read, including yours, Rebecca, is the way that it kind of takes a lot of science fiction and fantasy tropes and kind of reformulates them to talk about the indigenous experience and, and indigenous visions of the future. And, you know, particularly things like the post-apocalyptic world, which obviously is a big deal in some of your work, Rebecca, and, and also themes of first contact and exploration, which are have been kind of weaponized against indigenous people in the past. So I would love to hear both of your thoughts about that. And Rebecca, maybe you could start us off by talking about how you kind of reuse these or recontextualize these tropes in your work. Well, first and foremost, I am a science fiction fantasy fan. Uh, I've been reading uh, in that genre my entire life uh, and writing, uh, even before I became a professional writer, uh, in that genre. Uh, I've tried to write stories with, <laughs> like that are like contemporary fiction, and all of a sudden people are doing magic, or you know, I don't know. So I just can't do it. <laughs> I know my limitations. Yeah. Um, and so I love a lot of these tropes. Uh, you know, these these tropes have a function, uh, and they're also familiar. So a lot of what I think I do in my work is often take familiar tropes and then put them in the world that I'm creating uh, where I'm throwing a lot of new ideas and new things at readers. So I really try to balance that. Like, here's a familiar trope, um, you know, like the post-apocalyptic world. Like, I think we're all familiar sort of with that, that kind of novel. Uh, but let's say the apocalypse has already happened to indigenous people, you know, in 1492, we have already survived the apocalypse. Like, and here's what our world looks like now. 
So the rest of you are like, you know, in shock <laughs> and not the rest. And that we have been practicing survival for hundreds of years or for generations. Uh, and so hopefully that's sort of, um, cause I understand a lot of my readers are not indigenous, but I do, I think my primary, when I'm writing, I am usually writing for the indigenous reader. I want them to see themselves and their stories uh, and the people that they know, you know, day in and day out sort of thing in the stories that I write. Uh, and then everyone else can sort of come along uh, for the ride and enjoy it and maybe get something out of it. We have our own take on these sorts of things. And it's also a way through genre to introduce these ideas that are perhaps a little more palatable or a little more, oh, I didn't think of it that way, you know, to readers uh, who who are who don't seem to be able to stomach, you know, sort of a more nonfiction perspective. Julian, when I, I interviewed you one time before, you were telling me that you had had this kind of epic conversation in Paris with the filmmaker Cowboy Smith X, where he talked to you about how indigenous folks are living in the post-apocalypse. Can you talk about that or tell us a little bit about that conversation? I mean, one of the cool things about being a journalist is that I get to hang out with artists and creative types who are much cooler than I am. <laughs> and I would definitely count Cowboy among those. And his name is, in fact, Cowboy. He's a, a member of the, the Blackfeet Nation in, in what is now Alberta, Canada. We were at a literature festival just outside of Paris, France. And we were hanging out at, there's like a castle type thing in this little town called Vincennes. And he was just sort of like riffing on these ideas that that he's had like around kind of just like reclaiming all sorts of things and like taking the notion of like reclaiming things all the way to Europe. So he had this, you know, he has this film company called Noir Foot, which is a sort of play on his people's, um, what his people were called by white people, which is Blackfoot. He had this idea to reclaim um, Castle Calgary, and Calgary is the nearest major city to his people's reserve in, in Alberta, and rename it Mokinsis, which is the original Blackfoot word for Calgary, and it means the elbow. He has this way as a, as a filmmaker, and when we were hanging out, of sort of taking the what is the sort of nut of the story and exploring that as far as the sort of idea will go. And so he, he said this thing to me, which I guess I sort of knew in a felt sense, but hadn't sort of fully articulated before, um, that as Native people, we are a post-apocalyptic people, by which he meant that, you know, we have survived uh, apocalypses before. We survived the apocalypse of, of colonization, um, the genocide of, of our people, the, the theft of uh, over 99.9% .9 of our lands, the, uh, you know, taking of our children away to boarding schools. And today, you know, many of our, our people and communities still live in the aftermath of that apocalypse. You know, they're basically every single measurable statistic of misery, uh, Native people are pretty reliably falling to the bottom of it. And so, you know, I think that firstly, understanding indigenous people as a post-apocalyptic people probably is a fairly new concept to listeners. It was a new concept or a new way of articulating this concept to me not so long ago, I will admit. But I think it's it's very relevant 
right now from sort of like, I guess, a, a humanities perspective or, you know, sort of like what sort of human experiences matter in this moment perspective. Um, because we're, in my view, and, and in many scientists' views, we are effectively living through an apocalypse right now. We are living through, I live in DC. Uh, I just walked outside the store. It's 100 degrees and humid. And the parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere is somewhere around 410, which is unprecedented in all of human history. The last time there was that much carbon in the atmosphere, there were forests on Greenland. There was no Antarctic ice sheet. You know, the seas were hundreds of feet, uh, you know, above where they are now. And, you know, that is the reality that we have ch fundamentally changed the atmospheric chemistry of our planet is going to have and is already having in, in many parts of the world apocalyptic consequences. Of course, at the same time we're recording this episode, uh, when I walked outside, I had to throw a, a, a mask on because we're in the middle of a pandemic, a pandemic that is, you know, making the most vulnerable in our society, uh, you know, putting them at putting them at risk of death. The old, uh, you know, the 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 poor, uh, many people of color uh, are the most at risk amidst this pandemic. And at the same time, you know, as we're recording. There are currently in, in cities in the United States, including Portland, Oregon, there are, you know, representatives of the United States military who are patrolling the streets and rounding up protesters, you know, something that is, is quite foreign, I think, to many people who, uh, you know, have only been paying attention to United States politics over the last so many years. So, you know, just to summarize that, we are enduring an you know, uh, an ecological apocalypse. We are enduring uh, an apocalypse of our health and well-being. And we're also enduring what, what I would view as, as a potential political apocalypse of an apocalypse that feels like an occupation to some, that feels like the loss of democracy to many, uh, that, that looks like, you know, the sort of infringement on civil rights to, to many others and human rights to folks who are at the border. And, you know, who, in my view, has the past lived and human experience of apocalypses like that. Um, you know, I think that indigenous people are, are certainly a group that has that and carries those stories and carries the genetic consequences of prior apocalypses in our very DNA. And so, you know, I think that's why storytellers like, like Cowboy, um, like Rebecca, and, and like so many others who are telling that perspective to a wider audience and explaining um, maybe not explicitly always, but, you know, showing why it matters are so important in this moment because, you know, we need uh, sort of experiences that tell us that humans have survived apocalypses before and, you know, can persist and, you know, be reborn in our cultures and, our, and in our love for each other and in our art and all of that afterwards. Yeah. And actually that segues perfectly into my next question that I was going to ask, which is in the middle of the the cluster of crises that we're living through right now, in particular, what kind of stories should we be telling and what kind of stories do indigenous people need most and what kind of stories are going to be most useful to kind of that kind of survival or, or survivance as, as Jared Visner called it? 
so I would say the indigenous stories that need to be being told or whatever the hell indigenous people want to tell. <laughs> um, yes. I think, <laughs> I think that, you know, our voices have been absent for so long uh, that, um, you know, shout it out. If you want to tell, you know, important stories, tell important stories. If you want to tell frivolous stories, if you want to tell a romance, you know, if you want to tell stories of survival, whatever it is that you want to tell, I think is important and vital and adds to the conversation. So I don't really think through, like when I'm going to write, I'm like, I'm writing this, you know, because it's important to me, but also because there are some badass people doing some badass things. And, you know, and that's sort of like my, my criteria for what kind of story I want to tell often. Um, sometimes I'm more thoughtful, but often I just like, you know, pew pew stuff. <laughs> so anyway, um, you know, so I just, I don't, I don't think there's any bad story right now for indigenous voices. I think we, the more the merrier and, you know, I would love to hit a critical mass uh, sort of level of different kinds of stories, uh, from indigenous creators. I wonder if I could just ask a quick follow-up to that because, you know, Trail of Lightning, which was an incredible novel that you published a couple of years ago now, um, really centers the idea of survival and indigenous survival. It's, I mean, it's also just, as you said, it's a badass story about like people running around and fighting evil spirits. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and about how survival kind of fit into that story and how you were imagining it when you were framing it. So two levels of survival. There's the larger sort of cultural survival and then there's a very personal level of survival. You know, the main character, Maggie Hosky, has survived an act of violence in her life that sort of set her on her course. Uh, and, you know, that's that's a personal survival. That's actually pulling from some of my own personal history the way that some authors, you know, many authors do. Uh, so there's levels of that. You know, there's how to how to find community again, which is what she struggles with probably the most, how to trust people again, you know, which she struggles with. So there's this like individual survival. How do I move forward in my life? And then there's a sort of larger survival narrative of, you know, the Navajo Nation, uh, which I lived for uh, quite a while and still have relatives and loved ones there. We spend a lot of time there. Uh, and what I saw there, and, and you know, what I did in the story too was they're doing the best. <laughs> you know, of the entire world. So, you know, of this, because the setting of Trail of Lightning, everything has been flooded below about 4,000 feet or something. We are 20 years into this big water, this flood. Uh, people on the res, on the Navajo Nation are doing pretty good because they've already learned how to survive this sort of situation. People on the outside world, there's actually a wall built around the Navajo Nation now they're not doing so good. <laughs> and so what I really wanted to sort of capture that idea also of like, you know, uh, life on the res goes on, <laughs> you know, we're used to, you know, being, you know, like having less or, you know, living on generators or not having running water. And of course, you know, these things need to be solved. But, you know, the things that were weaknesses or that the outside world might consider weaknesses suddenly become strengths. And I really wanted to play with that idea. Julian, do you have any thoughts about that? I hesitate to say like what the stories are, but I, I'm trying to think about what makes me so drawn to like the films, for example, made by someone like Taika Waititi, who, um, you know, who's a, a amazing, incredible filmmaker who also, you know, can, can, can do indie films and he can also, you know, take on a, 
a superhero franchise like Thor um, and, and make a film like Ragnarok. And it can be widely considered like one of the best Marvel films when there are like, you know, how many dozens of those. And I don't know what's what makes Taika Waititi so good. And is that, you know, I, I would imagine that there is some elements of, you know, his sort of perspective as a Maori filmmaker that that informed that, you know, there's some obvious sort of um, references to indigenous culture, whether it be the fact that one of the spaceships is the color of the Aboriginal Australian, you know, First Nations flag, or, um, you know, the fact that like, he plays the, I forget what the alien who's like a pile of rocks, but he like plays that guy. Um, and there's like a lot of humor in, in the way he shoots his films. And which, you know, as a as a native person, as an Indian, you know, we can tell the darkest stories, and there can often be like, like humor in there, like there's sort of a tragic comedy mm-hmm. sort of way of telling mm-hmm. the so I think there's like a way in which I guess this is like not a fully I don't know if I have a full thought on this totally yet, but I think there's a way in which the story is told, maybe not so much what the subject of the story is, that feels to me there is like a certain set of sort of voices and perspectives that can come from sort of an indigenous perspective and worldview that feel like they come from a particular cultural background to me. And then I think I would also just say that you know, as a, as a journalist and as someone who has to develop sources and has a large network of people who, whose stories, you know, folks give to me, essentially, they, they spend time, you know, interviewing with me. And, uh, you know, that is in my view, like a gift that they, they share what happened to them, to their family, their emotions, often even, you know, they give me the privilege of telling and sharing their story. And I think that there is a relationship there to, as a journalist, at least your sources, your source material, your community, your people, that feels quite different than sort of the parachute in, um, you know, fly out sort of uh, mm-hmm. brand of journalism that, that I think it's easy to caricature, but is, is very present in um, the rest of, of media. So I think that there's maybe some sort of not sort of subject area of, of approaches. I mean, there's definitely some subject areas that are common. I, I, I'm trying to explore here what maybe the approach is, the methodology, if you will. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I would just add that, of course, you know, Rebecca is also, um, you know, stepping out into some mainstream properties with her Star Wars uh, book. So, you know, all hail, like being in both worlds, you know, having stuff that's more specific and being able to, you know, dip your foot into a franchise. Rebecca, Julian, could you just tell us where people, where to find you online? I am at RebeccaRoanHorse.com, R-O-A-N-H-O-R-S-E. I'm also spending way too much time on Twitter at RoanHorseBex, B-E-X. And I just want to say I have a new book coming out in October called Black Sun. It's an epic fantasy inspired by the indigenous Americans. Um, And it's so good. Oh my God. I can't wait. (laughs) Yay, Julian. I also spend way too much time on Twitter. I'm at jnoisecat. I also have a website where you can read um, all of my articles in various newspapers and magazines. It's just julianbravenoisecat.com. And um, I owe my agent a book proposal that I keep putting off. So maybe eventually you'll have a book for me to, to buy if I 
if I stop procrastinating. Yeah, <laughs> something to look that's forward my to. Methodology. That's my <laughs> methodology. My book is running very much on Indian time. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. That was incredible and really awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for having me. So after the break, we're going to answer a question from one of our beloved Patreon supporters. Welcome to a new feature that we're calling Allow Us to Explain, where every now and then we ask some of our Patreon supporters to ask us questions on our Patreon that we'll then answer on the podcast. And so we have a couple of questions from Sam Veltri, who asks, are there any sci-fi or fantasy works you continually come back to, either as tradition or as pure love for the work, and also you are put in charge of bringing whatever book or comic book to the screen, either television or movie. And how do you, what do you pick and how do you adapt it? And I think that those are two really good questions to answer together. Um, so Annalie, do you want to go first? Sure. I'll go first. So there's a novella slash short novel by Fritz Leiber called mm. Our Lady of Darkness that was published in 1977. So that makes it kind of on the border of classic science fiction and I come back to it a lot because it's set in my hometown of San Francisco, and it perfectly captures a kind of a mood that overtook the city in the 1970s, and it combines it with something that he calls megapolisomancy, which is, um, you know, basically city magic. This is often hailed as the first example of urban fantasy writing, modern urban fantasy writing in, in America. And the tale centers on gentrification and how gentrification is turning San Francisco into an evil symbol that will allow dark forces to enter. And specifically, the erection of the Transamerica Pyramid, and I use erection here <laughs> very specifically because um, it really does look like a giant erection. Anyone who's mm -hmm. seen the San Francisco skyline, it's like a very tall, slender pyramid with a, a kind of fluted top. The Transamerica Pyramid was built in the 1970s over top of an artist's colony that had been there for many, many years and was torn down. It was a place where Jack London had lived. A lot of uh, oh, sci-fi fantasy authors had lived there. And Fritz Leiber and number of, of other writers in his cohort were just really saddened by the loss of this huge artist colony than being replaced by this hideous bank oh, building um, that just kind of marred the skyline. And so in Our Lady of Darkness, the main character, who is a sci-fi writer and a fantasy writer, um, discovers that once the Transamerica Pyramid is erected, it forms a magical symbol with a couple of other San Francisco landmarks that will then allow in this, these dark forces. And so it's sort of his descent into magic and madness and creepy hippie culture. And they all kind of mix together. And um, I, it just, it deeply affected me because it, it really is about how urban politics and urban magic mix together I actually wrote a short story called Unclaimed uh, a number of years ago that was published in Shimmer Magazine that's kind of a response to 
Our Lady of Darkness, and it's set uh, in Corona Heights, which is one of the other points on the on the evil triangle that's being created by the Transamerica Pyramid. <laughs> um, and so, in Corona Heights, for anyone who's ever been in San Francisco, it's a very it's a beautiful place, but it's kind of creepy looking from a distance. Mm-hmm. It has all these broken rocks that look like teeth. So, I would love to see, you know, someone. Uh, like Guillermo del Toro um, take on this story, you know, and really he hasn't already. Yeah. I mean, he's busy. He's doing a lot. And the thing that's, that's great about, you know, a story like this is it, it kind of borrows some of the, the tropes that you see often in Lovecraftian tales where it's sort of linking American history and urbanism together with ancient evil, but it doesn't have any of Lovecraft's like, shitty racism it has other issues um for Mm -hmm. sure i mean it was written in the 70s but it's it's much more about the west and it's specifically about kind of social change you know how there's this churning of population in san francisco and some of it brings in hippies and brings in counterculture and some of it brings in this kind of gentrifying you know wealth culture anyway i think it would be amazing um i would love to see a really gothy but smart and political kind of take on this story. I'd also love to see somebody like Boots Riley take it on. Like that would be great, you know, like to yeah. give it like a, cause he's a local Bay area filmmaker. Um, he does a great job of like interweaving urban politics and, and sort of weird science. His movie, Sorry to Bother You is just incredible. So he could also take this on um, and, and I imagine would do, an amazing job with it. Oh man, yeah. Okay, what's your that pick? That would be incredible. So my pick uh, for both for books that I keep coming back to all the time and for things that I would love to adapt for the screen is the novel Geek Love by <gasps> Catherine yes! Dunn, which is a book that you know really changed my life when I first read it. It's a book that really kind of blew my head open. And you know, it's this book about like sur- a family of circus freaks kind of who try to genetically engineer their children to be better circus freaks by using chemicals and radiation and stuff. And But it turns into this thing about twisted families and cults and this one character who is kind of trying to save her daughter and her brother is becoming a cult leader. And it's just, it's such a beautifully weird and messed up novel that, and it's so beautifully written, like every sentence is incredible. And I just always come back to it and just kind of read a few pages at a time. And I'm just like, holy, you know, Catherine Dunn, unfortunately, died a few years ago without releasing another novel. So that might be the last novel we ever get from her. I think she also did one other book before that. But it's really sad, but it's such an incredible book. And it would be such a cool, weird, I don't know, like an HBO miniseries. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like HBO or Stars or somebody or Netflix maybe could do a really fucked up kind of intense, just bizarre miniseries based on geek love. It couldn't be a movie, I don't think, but a miniseries or even an ongoing series could just like delve deeper and deeper into the weirdness of that world and the the kind of dysfunctional relationships of these characters. I think that there's just so much that can be done there. What Are there any um, shows that you've seen on HBO that like where you loved the tone and you would love to see someone take that tone and apply it to geek love? Oh, man. I mean, I was actually literally just watching the Watchmen miniseries finally and thinking that that kind of has like a weird like the 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 kind of, you know, the dialogue between the past and present in that series and the kind of 
slightly arch surreal tone of that series is kind of good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like, you know, the folks who made glow weirdly could do something really good with, with geek love. I feel like, but just something that's, or, or actually Mrs. America, the folks who made Mrs. America, something that kind of deals with like complicated inner lives of women, but also just like surreal, weird bullshit kind of. Yeah. I like that idea of bringing, you know, people who've worked in kind of comedy or like mm-hmm. historic, like historical tinged comedy or comedy tinged history, whatever you want to say yeah. um, to do that. Because one of the things that's so great about geek love is that it is very gothy and that it it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's about families producing mutants, but it's also really sarcastic and kind of ironic. And there's like a lot of like really great dark humor in it. Um, So yeah, I, I'm obsessed with Mrs. America. I would love to see that team, that writer team, like hunker down with geek love. So dear Holly. Or or the makers of, or the makers of Russian doll too. I feel like those folks. Yeah. Wow. You're just, you're blowing my mind. I feel like now is the the moment when we could get a really, really good geek love miniseries. Yeah. And I'd so much rather see that than like Handmaid's Tale crap, which is just like Mm -hmm. so on the nose. Like I want to see something that's like really delving into like the inner lives of people who are going through political change and going through social change and like how they handle it and not have it just be like, well, what happens is that like women become enslaved again. And it's like, yeah. That could happen, but also there's all these other psychological mechanisms right. for like preventing women from making the choices they want to make, preventing anyone from making the choices they want to make because of what their families have done or what, you know, the entertainment industry has done to their families in the case of Geek Love. I'm into it. Sign me up. Nice. Well, Thank you so much for listening. This has been Our Opinions Are Correct. Uh, we'll be back two weeks from now with another episode. If you want more, you can join us on Patreon, where we post extras, including audio extras. And you know, any donation on there is greatly appreciated. We're really grateful to our Patreon supporters. Also, if you like our podcast, please do leave a review. And you can find our podcast in all of the places that podcasts are found anywhere in the entire known universe that you can download podcasts. You can get ours, including Apple and Stitcher and LibSign and Google Podcasts. And thank you so much to our wonderful and brilliant and talented audio producer, Veronica Simonetti with Women's Audio Mission here in San Francisco. Thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. And thanks again to you for listening. We just really appreciate you so much. And we'll be back in two weeks. Bye. Bye.